Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast. In this episode, I speak to Daniela Moody and Daniel Barak of UrsaSpace. UrsaSpace is a satellite imaging company which is constantly sweeping the planet with a technology known as SAR. Akin to radar, SAR can see through clouds and is accurate enough to measure the heights of floating lids on giant oil containers, making it an invaluable tool for understanding the amount of oil in storage at any given moment around the world. The potential uses of SAR are almost unlimited, from measuring the number of cars currently under construction, to the changing height of Mount Everest, to detecting troop movements at sensitive borders. We begin by talking about Daniela's time at the Los Alamos Space Facility. So in this episode, I'm with Daniela Moody and Daniel Barak of Ursa Space. Um, it's a very uh, exciting technical company based around satellites. Um, so for the first 15 minutes, we're going to be talking to Daniela about the, the technical side and the, and the space stuff. Um, and then with Daniel, we'll, we'll talk about the commercial side. Um, so welcome, both of you. Thank you, Mark. Great to be Thanks, here. Mark. Fantastic. Um, so, Daniela. Um, you well, let's talk about your background a little bit first. I think because you um, you 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 worked at Los Alamos for a while, didn't you? I did. Uh, I spent almost ten years at Los Alamos National Laboratory in New Mexico. Uh, I was uh, working on a lot of satellite-based uh, data, some imagery, some RF, uh, some other modalities, and um, fell in love with uh, with space and anything that has to do with uh, sensing from orbit. And uh, after Los Alamos, I switched gears a little bit and joined the startup world. And can, uh, I, can I just because we're because we're because yeah. we're, we're using you for your space? Uh, what's it like working at Los Alamos? Is it is it? I mean, what, what what's the feel like? Well, it, it is uh, really fantastic to work in a place that uh, made history. Uh, I mean, the world would not be maybe the way it is today had it not been for some of the scientific advantages at Los Alamos. Um, and I wanted to reassure everybody, it, it is a real uh, place. In New Mexico, uh, even though I, I did get the equational questions when I when I fly, in um uh, in uh, TSA, but um it it has been uh it's it's really phenomenal for one's technical sanity, if you will, to be constantly exposed and uh, embedded, if you will, in a in a place that has such a diversity of backgrounds, of knowledge, of scientific upbringing, um, of cultures. And it's uh, never a dull, never a dull day uh, working in Los Alamos. I still um, can benefit from that quite a bit because I still live here. Um, but working at Los Alamos is, is a unique experience, um, and I think I was I was fortunate to have it. Fantastic. You told me when we spoke before. You told me that you would uh, take the opportunity on the podcast to tell the truth about what happened at Roswell in 1947. So, um, so now's your opportunity. Yes, thank you for that. So, uh, I don't know what happened, but I can tell you currently that they're very much uh, excited about any alien um, landing. There are there are dedicated landing spots there. So, for any aficionados that uh, would like to um, enter more of that world and and uh, have the experience of having. Uh, a Starbucks cup of coffee with uh, at an alien landing site. Roswell is your destination. It is also a real uh, city in New Mexico, so absolutely you should come visit New Mexico once it is uh, safe to do so. Uh, so they love your custom. Fantastic. Um, cool. Well, we, let's talk about Ursa Space because that's what we're here for. So, um, so Daniela, you. Um, so why did you why did you join Ursa Space? What attracted you there? 
Well, uh, I mentioned earlier, I, I did fall in love with, with space and all this remote sensing data. And it turns out it is very much an un, uncharted, unsolved problem to date. Um, I believe there's there's been so much investment in hardware. And I mean, we've been sensing as you know, humanity, if you will, in early 1970s uh, in terms of satellite-borne uh, sensors. And right now we have so much data. I mean, you're looking at uh, petabytes and petabytes a year from even just one sensor modality alone. So we need to have that bridge between uh, lots of data that we produce to making sense of it all. And URSA in particular, I think, is um, very strategically positioned to provide that bridge to, to integrate uh, knowledge from many different sensors in a unified fashion. So to me, the opportunity to actually work on both synthetic aperture radar, uh, and we'll talk more about what that looks like, which is a very it's, a, it's an alternative data set. It's uh, harder to understand. It's not intuitive and pleasant to look at, but uh, it's nonetheless uniquely capable of providing transparency in the world today. So I had that on one hand and the opportunity to actually develop some of these uh, and apply right emerging artificial intelligence, machine learning, computer vision techniques on a data set that is not exactly um, fully explored, if you will, and exploited. And I firmly believe that SAR data and some of these alternative data sets are truly the uncharted territory of the next decade in terms of sensing and understanding the world. And URSA is, as I said, was that unique opportunity to enable me and the team to be right there at the bleeding edge of technological advancement. Fantastic. Okay. So um, so you've just touched on a couple of subjects which we should spell out in a bit more detail. So um, URSA specializes in SAR and it's quite it's fairly unique for specializing in SAR so what is SAR and why is it so good? SAR stands for synthetic aperture radar and uh, it is I will talk in a bit more detail what the few features that make it uniquely um, interesting to us and to the world at large I think fundamentally URSA's mission is revealing global changes from space and that um, I wanted to put that out there because that is one of the reasons why we believe SAR is so critical uh, to executing our mission and bringing this vision about. So uh, going back to the roots of SAR, um, radar in general, this was something that um, you saw back in the World Wars, and it was used just as radar in terms of communication and estimating range to uh, metal objects. Uh, we actually use it every day, um, all of us, when we look at uh, weather forecasts, for example, and we um, try to understand if there's a storm coming our way and how bad the precipitation will be. And that should give you an important clue why SAR is so interesting. Fundamentally, it operates at, an, at a range in, in the electromagnetic spectrum that is not sensitive to clouds. Um, so it can see through clouds, if you want to put it that way. It can also see night and day. It works every time. And now is it's, it's available pole to pole, so we can actually monitor the world 24-7, day and night, regardless of weather. The synthetic part of the SAR acronym comes from the fact that uh, usually you need an antenna that's of the size commensurate with the size of the object you're trying to monitor. Well, in our case, if you want to monitor the things we want to monitor, um, an equivalent antenna might be the size of a football stadium. It would be a little hard to fly. So we create the synthetic aperture by taking a smaller antenna and moving it, if you will, or keep recording with it across the across an orbit to create the synthetic aperture. So effectively, we increase what the what the sensor, what the radar sensor can see by actively pinging the Earth uh, with these radio frequency pulses, and that's that's really the nutshell of SAR. 
So an aperture is what you look through in a camera. What, what is it when you're talking about radar? Uh, fantastic question. So uh, similar concept. Uh, of course, you can't see anything because it's not a, it's not a wavelength that's native to your eye. Uh, the, the idea is the same, is you have an antenna, you'll have an antenna beam or a pattern, and that's the aperture is what does the sensor see. Uh, the same concept applies. Um, what you're effectively trying to do is make, um, I guess in the EO, in the electro-optical sense, um, maybe creating that, um, an equivalent or a parallel might be creating that super-resolved image or creating a structure from motion by having a 3D view or multiple cameras right, doing that panoramic view. You are trying to increase your your aperture, what you sense, by moving your sensor or by by creating different views of the same object, um, so that you create a better or a deeper understanding. Fundamentally, it's a similar concept to how SAR works. The difference is SAR is an active sensor, um, and that means there's an antenna that physically transmits a, a radio frequency beam from space and then measures the return back from whatever objects it encountered on the ground. Whereas your camera, um, it relies on solar illumination, right? So you do not need to, well, you use the flashlight sometimes if you're a connoisseur of taking good pictures, but you do not need um, to, to act in it, to, to add an additional, um, what do you call it, an active sensing part to that, uh, to that modality. Got it. Okay. So we've got, um, so we've got a large, a, a relatively large, well, we've got hundreds now of satellites uh, rotating around the earth and um you, how many of them do you use? Do you use one or do you use five or do you use 20? Uh, right now, close to, closer to 20. Uh, we are constantly increasing what we call our virtual constellation. These are all owned and operated by different providers, uh, different um, nations. Um, the advantage here is that they are globally distributed. And by, co- by consolidating the sensing into a virtual constellation, as opposed to just considering one physical constellation at a time, we are able now to monitor the Earth, um, as I said, 24-7 from pole to pole um, and get to these observations that enable us to, to drive our mission home, which is revealing global changes from space. And um, we've had, oh, you asked earlier, why is SAR so unique? Um, we can make a picture with SAR that will look like a camera photo that we might be used to. But SAR is unique in different ways in that it doesn't just lend itself to, visualize, to visually determine whether an object is still there or not, whether there is, um, uh, you know, a, a forest got cut down or whether there's a new plant somewhere or whether there's a new road being constructed. It's not just about detecting absence or presence of an object, but because it is an active sensor. And remember, if you uh, just picture in your mind some of those um, Doppler views that you see when you go to a, a weather type website, right? You, you have an active part of it that shows you things as they move. And you can start inferring things such as, um, is this a moving object or a stationary object? Is, this, um, is the activity in a particular port or a particular factory increasing or decreasing? Uh, what direction might the object be moving? Is that on ground or is it on maritime? Uh, because again, it works, it works anywhere. Um, and those kinds of changes are really what we believe are fundamentally the, that missing piece to provide timely, actionable intelligence from this alternative data set to the market. And, you know, I know Daniel uh, will speak about that in a lot more detail. Sure. So in terms of in terms of what SAR can do, it's a great thing that it can see through the weather. So it, it beats all the visual visual ones in that in that case, because like every camera, like every normal camera, um, then you're slightly flummoxed by a cloud. 
Um, but uh, so what's what's our best at? What's what what's it most useful for detecting or understanding or seeing? A uh, fabulous question, and this is going to be a challenging question to ask from a technical perspective because it is good at so many things. It's easier to almost say what is it not? It should not be used for. So unlike a camera or a multispectral imager in orbit, um, SAR doesn't lend itself well to uh, to understand color. If you think of color or think of it as spectral properties of an object, SAR is uniquely capable of honing in on changes and presence of man-made objects, things that are metallic. Things that have edges, um, which does it have to be quite big, I imagine. Uh, well, it depends, and this depends on how we use our data, right? If it's a um, if it's a smaller object, uh, there are other ways you can process the SAR. Remember, this is an active sensor, right? So the final image you look at is not the only way to process a a, a collection of, of synthetic aperture radar um, data. But uh, maybe there are size limitations to certain things. But then there are, there are observations that you can infer in lieu of the missing thing. So for example, we had, um, um, you know, we had a case where uh, in this year, 2020 was a very odd year. And I'll, you know, I think that's putting it mildly for everyone. And one of the things we had to do was um, look at our pipeline and our products and everything we were normally measuring. Um, So we have a number of products, for example, that look at direct measurements of, um, you know, all storage tanks, uh, things that are hugely relevant for the energy market vertical, um, and activity at um, various sites in case there was, uh, you know, uh, something blew up or there was an accident or a hazard or a natural disaster. We already had the pipeline to do that. What turned or changed in the time of COVID was uh, we had to modify some of that uh, pipeline to really be disruptive and lead, um, you know, change our innovation to actually answer the questions that came up, which was, um, hey, I don't have boots on the ground because COVID lockdown. So we don't know whether or not a factory in China is still producing. Uh, we do not know if uh, this um, hurricane that hit, you know, we, we have no way of seeing the extent of the flood, maybe because the response is reduced or we don't have uh, fill in the blanks, uh, what we may not have. So um, the important bit with SAR and what we've done uniquely at URSA was creating this pipeline, this technical capability, if you will, to actually take in SAR data and have a platform in place that would take it, clean it, make it unified, and then get to these change measurements and activity indicators, if you will. And what we've done in this past year has been taking those outputs and now applying them to some new problem sets that our customers came up with from the financial markets, from the automobile manufacturing markets, from the uh, environmental and governance, uh, you know, sustainability uh, direction, uh, because they had new questions. And the challenge was really, can we take this alternative data um, type and fuse it with other sources of data to now answer there's, their new emerging questions that we didn't have to consider before, but look, it turns out, yes, we can answer them by changing a little bit how we use our pipeline and making them um, making them more easy to observe, if that makes sense. Daniela, you're a pro. I can see you've set me up very nicely to move on to Daniel, but I've got one more one more question for you. Just uh, let's let's just dwell a little bit more on, on something you just said. So, for example, um, you know, an automotive, uh, an auto manufacturer had come to you with a specific question that Sar could answer. Is that is that more about how many cars are moving around, for example, in the United States, or is that more about how many cars are being made in China, or what kind of question are we are we talking about? Uh, the questions always depend. Um, and I know Daniel will talk about this in more detail, but um, fundamentally, and that's what we have to do with every customer, is figure out what is uh, what is truly um, 
the observable part of their question. So uh, a customer may be interested in the overall impacts to the automobile supply chain, but truly, if you drill down into what their what the question is that they need to have answered is, um, I actually need to know if my supply is getting impacted because the Chinese factory is down. So now, how can we use SAR data um, that we have to to figure out what's happening there? And it's important to know that uh, you you mentioned this earlier, Mark. We have uh, decades of SAR data out there uh, in terms of what's free and publicly available with global coverage. Uh, let's uh, let's choose, for example, the the free archive that we have from um, European Space Agency. This is called Sentinel One. It's been running since 2013, so we can use these archive data sets um, that are both what you call coarser resolution SAR data, but also some of the archives from our vendors, which are much higher resolution, exquisite detail, uh, X-band SAR, and now we can, you know, if we understand that there's an activity to be monitored or understood at a location. You can focus there and start using the archive and what you know to build or learn, if you will, these models that will then infer pattern of life and what's considered nominal activity. Um, you know, it turns out there is um, there's changes, for example, in water levels in in dams and in rivers uh, that are seasonal. They're not necessarily meaning there's a flood, but it's important to know um, what the flood might look like in the context of a seasonality type change. So. We have to use the archive that we have to build that timeline or that pattern of life. And then once we continue monitoring, it's um, the anomalous change or the anomalous activity uh, really stands out uh, pretty clearly. So that's that's one of the ways we've used our data with our customers. I think that historic aspect will be very important to investors and the ability, to, for example, to backtest or to see how things have changed. Um, and as I understand it from what you've told me previously, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it's almost like, and, and um, you could you could say there's almost three levels of of, of um, granularity in that somebody could come to you and say, I want you to really focus on this specific area for the next however long, month, two months, three months, and really study what's going on. And that would be the highest uh, kind of highest quality. But then, as you say, you can go back to the the standard suites of the earth, which have been happening with this with this um, Sentinel One since 2013, which is pretty high quality. Or, or at the basis level, you can go back to 1978, can't you, with the original satellites and get some. You know, you can get a a, a feel for what was happening. You can get you can get some level of of of, of data to to use it against. Is that right? In theory, yes. I, um, I'm i much more of a fan to, to stick to Sentinel-1. It does give you now five-plus years of archive. I think if you're referring to CSAD, uh, going back to 1978, remember that some of those satellites were actually in different bands and had different uh, collection geometries. So it's very important. Uh, you know, It's not sufficient just to know that there was a SAR satellite flying there anytime between 78 and now. You have to make sure that you can build a temporal stack of information that you can learn from. And what we found is that um, it was... In terms of quality and um, getting to these trusted results, it was very important for our customers and for us too to be able to validate some of our observations um, with with Sentinel One. And remember, you, you defined one workflow. And remember, a lot of these are indeed customers coming to say, uh, "There's this particular area, this particular fill in the whatever AOI may be. Uh, look there." And usually, the changes they're looking at are not necessarily. 10 plus years back. It's just more recent years. And they always want to know now, what's the case now? What's that timely piece of information that I need to have? The um, the other way we've had to make products, and that was one of our old storage products that you know Daniel is going to talk a little bit more about, 
that is something we know is needed on the, say, um, energy market in terms of um, the oil supply chain. So in that case, we already know uh, where all the floating oil storage tanks are in the world. Um, we monitor those weekly. We measure them. Uh, we have we have run at this point uh, accuracy studies and we have white papers, and that is a product that is very mature. And a lot of customers just want to know, you know, what is the state of uh, stored oil, oil, or you know, by country or by whatever region. And that is a um, that's more feeding into their financial models or whatever analytics they may have. Um, but it's important to have those kinds of data sets also always calculated and available, so then you can get to the superseding alternative data set correlation, right? That looks at um, customer so and so is interested in you know more economic outlook in a whatever region. Can we use what we have? What do we have? Well, we have port monitoring. We have um, activity index at these factories. We have oil storage. We have um, shipping data. We have uh, oil tanker shipping data. We have, uh, you know, now it's a question of, while we have a lot of information, let's start perusing it smartly to get to a, you know, that decision type output that our customers ultimately want. Great. Great. Okay. I think the baton is now very clearly in the air, ready for Daniel to, to, to grab hold of it. So thank you, Daniela. And let's let's move on to the commercial side. Um, so Daniel, uh, Daniela touched on it um, a little bit, well, a lot. Um, where, who do you, who do you say, who would you say are your number one clients for your alternative data, perhaps with a financial markets bend? Sure. More broadly, our, our typical markets, straddle both uh, business, commercial, and government decision makers. On the commercial uh, market segments, as Daniela mentioned, we, we have vastly uh, broad products that kind of speak to different markets, but in particular, I'd say our core, core user falls within the, sort of the commodities trading, energy trading, uh, financial investing, alternative investment world. Uh, we have some folks more so on the sell side as well as consulting side, large-scale banks, but for the major players that you would imagine who are looking for either a competitive advantage from a time arbitrage opportunity, from a uh, transparency perspective or a ground truth perspective. And say those are generally the three main kind of value props that folks are, are coming to us looking for, again, from a, from a satellite intelligence perspective. Okay. And so what can someone who is a commodities trader, what, what can you offer them? Sure. Well, uh, having been in that that those shoes uh, previously from Morgan Stanley and Glencore and and on the buy side at uh, multi asset alternative investment funds, uh, basically putting myself in the shoes of our clients and what would they what would we proactively like to provide, knowing the pain points for folks in the market and opportunities as Daniela outlined, uh, with the enviable problem of SAR being able to be applied to so many different markets or, or pain points, focusing those for larger scale financial institutions, macro, uh, sort of discretionary macro perspectives. Within the energy space, uh, as Danielle alluded to, our, our core bread and butter uh, company originally started focusing on creating direct measurements, essentially taking 3D measurements of individual oil tanks around the world. We actually began in China since that's the most opaque and, and arguably the largest uh, market mover and quickly scaled that out to the globe where we're taking direct measurements of each individual tank, uh, having already identified the top and bottom of these tanks and measuring on a weekly basis movement in terms of volume from a floating lid perspective. So basically we're, we're able to understand more broadly by these taking these direct measurements, we can 
identify things like speed or distance or, or direction of things. When we're applying that technology for global oil storage, oil storage is generally considered sort of the black box when it comes to, to energy trading. Folks have a relatively clear understanding of the supply side, more the upstream perspective, as well as the refining and the downstream perspective, more as a proxy for demand. Um, uh, but folks who are in the space know, I mean, global energy markets are, are notoriously opaque, uh, significant challenges when, when dealing with sort of the traditional oil storage data out there. Uh, traditionally, they're either outdated, uh, limited to just a handful of locations or uh, to say it nicely, uh, variable accuracy, depending on government uh, statistical releases that are put out there. Because a government might want to, uh, might want people to think they have more than they do or, or that kind of thing. Well, there may be no incentive for them to accurately report and most likely are reporting at a one to two month lag from the present day. So at the end of the, at the, end of the day, supply demand fundamentals will have already changed uh, by the time those statistical releases are are released by various government agencies. And again, the, the accuracy can be suspect. Why is upstream easier, less opaque? Generally, you have more transparency into it. The storage side, I mean, you can kind of see if there's rigs out there or not. Uh, storage is basically it's covered, so it's hard to scale at a scale, understand what's necessarily in those tanks. Downstream, you can understand through various measures whether or not a refinery is kind of running or not. But traditionally, the, the midstream, which is the storage side of the market, has generally been considered the black box. And that's what we're trying to solve with, with SAR, as Danielle alluded to. Uh, it, it's funny, in the market, most folks generally follow the headlines, but really, I'd say about two-thirds of what drives prices is, is fundamentals, which is generally inventory change, which represents the supply-demand balance. Um, even more recently, I mean, if you're following oil prices, global uh, you know, crude inventories are, I'd say, about 20% higher year on year. Um, if you're looking at more recently, though, October, November, we've seen some pretty decent declines uh, that have been buoying and bullish for, for oil prices. Both Brent and WTI oil prices are up about 25% uh, through that same time period. And if you look at China, for example, uh, the vast majority of global inventory declines have predominantly come through Chinese uh, refinery demand drawing down inventories. So if you think about refinery demand, it's basically a proxy for uh, energy energy strength or demand from an economic perspective for those refineries to be running. So if things are improving in China, we, we were doing this quite substantially in, in uh, early COVID days to understand the domino effect of, um, of COVID and, and how that's going to impact overall economic demand and using uh, drawdowns or builds or increases in uh, oil supply is generally one way to to get an insight there that traditionally markets didn't have access to. Just to dwell very quickly, um, the so you're what you're doing is you're pinging these these huge oil drums essentially these giant reservoirs which have got these floating lids and you can measure by if it's a tiny the the ping is coming back a tiny bit quicker, then that means that the lid is a little bit higher, which means it's a little bit fuller. Do they have to be floating these things or is, are they floating in order to keep the oxygen out or something like that? There are, there are regulatory and environmental uh, uh, considerations when, when building these. There are different, com different companies, different countries, et cetera, have different regulations. Uh, so it's, there's no uniformity necessarily around it, but generally... Generally, it depends on the product. We're talking about crude oil right now, but there are refined products, gasoline, et cetera, that may have different regulations 
for how the structures they're stored in are, are built, et cetera. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. And so um, oil traders, are, 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 are commodity traders are very interested, obviously, for predicting the oil price. Um, what was your what was your second um, second uh, tranche of, of users? Yeah, there's on the financial side more uh, speak to some of the macroeconomic discretionary macro folks. Typically, we, as Danielle alluded to, we've developed a whole slew of capabilities based on the underlying SAR data where uh, what we've coined activity indices, where we're measuring historical patterns of life, understanding the historical baseline levels of activity at XYZ uh, micro area of interest. We can also scale that for more broader macro insights and more so identifying or flagging those pivot points or inflection points of, act of activity to understand the current trend relative to historic. Broadly speaking, is that more likely to be a US town or a Chinese town or a Brazil or a kind of Brazilian in the middle of the jungle town? It could be anywhere. Um, I'll give you an example. So we've we started, again, early days of COVID kind of spawned the initial interest here. We were looking at what's been the impact economically of COVID in China. So we started with looking at some of the uh, Wuhan and surrounding area, large material uh, auto manufacturing facilities to see, you know, how are they faring amid sort of this, this uncertainty? Are they locked down? Are they ramping back up? If so, when and at, at what level? We immediately scaled that out to across Europe, across the US, and basically created what we call an, a global auto manufacturing activity index. So you can slice and dice that in a bunch of different ways where we're, we're essentially looking at uh, the, the amount of finished cars that are stored in these lots that are adjacent to the, the manufacturing facility. So that can be used as an indicator of production in real time for that facility. So you can Slice and dice that from both a company owner perspective. So how is Tesla operating versus Ford or, or VW, for example, or from a country, country by country comparison perspective. So for example, you could quickly see in uh, you know the, the V-shaped recovery in China at the end of Q1, early to Q2, but also seeing that the US was lagging in sort of a U-shaped recovery, end of Q2, more into early Q3. There's also some interesting kind of macro linkages and we're doing cross comparisons to, to various economic indicators. For example, looking at you know, our US slice of auto manufacturing, that normalized index versus the US PMI, for example, you're seeing about 0.73 correlation there. So understanding using the, the auto manufacturing production activity, whether it's ramping up, ramping down as sort of a a clear proxy for the prevailing economic direction, whether it's expansion or contraction, or that economic trend more broadly for a particular country, in this case, the US. I mean, similarly, across the German DAX and Eurostoxx 50, for example, we were seeing some strong correlations from more of a, a regional or country-specific economic index. We actually did some more micro-case-focused examples of looking at Tesla, for example, uh, everybody was curious to understand, well, how are, how are the lockdowns going to impact Tesla's production at the end of the day? We've been monitoring uh, the Tesla production facilities, both in China and the U.S. for, for quite some time. We understand, understand the historical patterns of life there, historical levels of production. And long story short, we we're able to provide a pulse on what production trends were looking like ahead of their of Tesla's quarterly earnings releases to the tune of a 0.75 correlation. So in essence, I'll give you an example. In, in Q2, right when everyone was uh, in the thick of COVID uh, uncertainty at that point, 
folks were forecasting all over the place uh, what what Tesla's production was going to be like. Wall Street estimated around 70,000 vehicles. Uh, based on our uh, production and our activity indices, Ursa, we forecasted 83,000. So we were a bit more bullish than, than Wall Street. Uh, Tesla came out a few weeks later and basically came out with 82,300. So we were within 700, 700 vehicles uh, with a leading signal. And Tesla, Tesla actually popped 9% pre-market uh, when they posted that. They posted stronger than expected figures. So again, a 9% pop pre-market. If you knew that, significant uh, opportunity to capitalize there. For sure. Fantastic. That's a great story. Um, and so what does your relationship with the clients look like? You mentioned an auto index. So that is presumably available to all clients. Or are you always tailor fit for, for a client, ask for a request and you do it for them? How is, how, how is your product? Uh, in what manner is it available? Generally, it depends. We, we do have off the shelf kind of uh, structured uh, offerings. For example, the our global oil storage, the global auto manufacturing, those are two off the shelf and standardized structured data sets uh, that both come with kind of user dynamic interfaces, whether they're dashboards or portal interfaces. There's obviously the traditional um, API, CSV, PDF type of summary reports that folks are, are traditionally used to, to dealing with. We do also work with very bes you know, bespoke custom uh, requests. So we're pretty fluid and flexible in that sense where we can take one, one micro example for an area of interest. We can also expand that and quickly scale it uh, if folks are looking for more macro insights. I can give you one, one quick example. I mean, from an ESG perspective, which I'd imagine uh, a lot of folks on, on listening to your podcast would be interested in. Sure. Obviously, ESG has gone, gone from niche to mainstream uh, relatively quickly. Folks are all looking for greater transparency and disclosures. There's some, you know, regulatory initiatives that are that are driving a lot of this. Whether it's the PRI, TCFD, SASB, they're all evolving as we speak. But there there are some definite challenges. There's a lot of players in this space who are, uh, you know, I would say scraping publicly available disclosures um, and kind of formatting them and, and summarizing them quite nicely. But your your typical investor right now is, is really challenged to understand, well, what's happening uh, or how can I verify that? You know, our, the, the, the cynic would say that a lot of this could be marketing or window dressing. They are self-reported public disclosures on an annual basis and given the current regulatory environment, but there is also a lack of that consistent or verifiable data. Um, so we were looking at uh, a disaster that occurred from a uh, dam collapsing in Brazil a few years ago from an ESG perspective, uh, this is something that, again, we can do at a frequent cadence. For example, we were noticing uh, a lot of downstream sort of toxic wastewater and mud that unfortunately took a lot of some, some lives in the area, uh, but also degraded the surrounding environment for quite some time. Those are areas that we're able to measure and quantify change in water levels, for example. Sorry, Daniel, this is a, um, this is a, a technical question, um, but does is SAR good at telling the difference between water and, and earth? The simple non-technical answer is yes. I'm sure I'll let Daniela take that uh, multiple levels further if you'd like. Uh, but yes, so so the point was that you're able to see that there was water. I mean, you were talking about wastewater and things like that seems like kind of understanding exactly kind of what kind of water sounds rather, rather fiddly. 
Correct. Through the through the SAR imagery, we can find evidence, for example, of toxic sludge or, or other particulates. Uh, in this case, that were downstream from the the collapse site, as well as you know where it actually met up with the the Atlantic Ocean. And this was we were seeing evidence of this uh, you know particulates in the water for about a month and a half, even after the event occurred. Uh, even even on the vegetation side of things, we were able to see clear lingering effects on the on the surrounding environment where there was declines in vegetation activity nearly a month, nearly a, a year later after the collapse. So there's this is the first. Uh, we've got Dan Daniela with her hand up, which is the first for this podcast. Um, I've never <laughs> had that before. Um, she's desperate to speak. So Daniela, please help us. How what's the um, what's the technical side of this? I'm a techie, right? So I had to use the features that I had available. Um, to actually build up a bit more on what Daniel was saying, you remember earlier I was describing, Mark, how SAR feeds off of um, particular geometric and metallic properties and objects that are created. Well, it turns out it also uh, resonates or, or works to, to measure, if you will, um, or is sensitive, but sensitive is the best word, to dielectric properties uh, and dielectric constants of the material that it, it is imaging. So one thing that we have noticed, yes, you can look at ocean water, for example, has a certain degree of salinity. The moment... Uh, you have an oil slick on top, the reflective and the dielectric constant of that surface material has now changed. So you can use SAR. Um, it will not give you, for example, uh, the specific type of oil, but if you know that a tanker has crashed somewhere, and we actually had a, um, well, we had a, a few cases where we had to study this, and you know there's an oil, an, oil, an oil leak, you can use SAR to actually measure the extent of the oil. And it's the same concept that applies to uh, wastewater or other water. There's, it's not just sufficient to measure um, you know, turbidity in water or material deposition or, you know, how that water might contain particular chemicals. The, uh, the part that's important here is what is that associated additional data and ancillary data that you bring to bear to confirm whether or not this water is an increased volume, say, of taxi water. So um, this is where the fact that the water is maybe downstream from a, a power plant or a refinery, you know that it's not, you know, a nice stream that just happened to pop by, right? You expect that it will be uh, co correlated somehow in terms of the, the source and its composition to to that facility. So we do have to use that fusion of insights to make more sense of what we're measuring. But fundamentally, SAR will tell you if the surface of the water has changed because there is a different composition now or a different um, substance, if you will, that's in the water or on top of the water. Completely. No, that's great. And I think I think that's useful. And we're we're kind of we're we're at the end. So I'm sorry, Daniel, if 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 you felt cut off. But I we did we definitely covered a lot of commercial uses. But um it also I think that's useful just in in summarizing just we haven't I feel I feel like we haven't scratched the surface in terms of what SAR can do. Um, because you know, this is a whole aspect which which we which we hadn't talked about. So um I, I hope uh, the listener ends up with a feeling that this is a a, a world of a world of possibility, and and um, I feel like we could do this for an hour and a half if if on another day. But um, so but for now we're we're a forty minute podcast, so we better stop. So um, Daniel Daniela, thank you so much for joining me and and, and talking about it. I've I found it fascinating. Thanks for having us, Mark. Thanks, Mark.